This is Brass Tactics, policy and strategy for the people, not the politics. When we last left our adventurers, they were in a heated debate over the irrelevancy of musket and rifle wars. But they did not disagree that gunpowder was, in fact, a big deal. One might even say it came on the scene with quite a bang. Dare you say it revolutionized things? I, I, I suppress the urge to say that because there was a revolutionary time there. There was a lot of social upheaval and a disruption. I don't know how gradual it was, but I don't think the history of warfare or the history of human societies is necessarily characterized by revolutions. That's fair, but I disagree with you. One does not make a pattern. But there's more than one, beyond just gunpowder. So far we just have gunpowder. Right, but we didn't really address the industrial or the nuclear revolutions. No, but we can. But that's still just a questing search for a new energy source. So I'm at this point then, I guess what I will what I will concede, Peter, is that I am more inclined to go with your interpretation of the history of warfare as one of exploiting potential energy over the history of warfare as a revolution. Because I All right. It's pretty sweet. Now we've got to write a book about that. I still maintain that this is an evolutionary pattern. Every next step was a logical progression of some new exploitation because the reason we all have a thinking capacity is so that we can work harder and not smarter. Ergo, the history of warfare is a history of people finding better and better ways to cheat and get one up on everybody else. And society benefits along the way. The quest for a better battery. A better and more efficient way of energy storage and output. This episode, sponsored by The Matrix. It's all a simulation, people. Wake up. To turn a human, to turn a human being into this. But, so getting back to the topic at hand, we left off with me vetoing a deep dive into the Thirty Years' War and doing anything with the Swedes or the Dutch because it's just not pertinent to the evolution or revolution. They still have muskets, they still have pikes, and the next big person that I would argue disrupts or moves the ball forward, progresses things in any way, is Napoleon, is what I would argue. Start of the 19th century. Fight me, Pete. I wouldn't say Napoleon so much as changes as harnesses the energies that are, out, that are basically bursting out to the French Revolution which is made possible by the Industrial Revolution, the printing press, urbanization, the populace. That's fair, but I'd also say that it, this, this might be getting a little bit more chicken or eggy, so it's, it's definitely this time period is the next change. Correct. Right. The, modern, the historians generally say the modern world starts in 1789 with the French Revolution. Ah, uh, yes those modern historians telling us how to live our lives. But it's at, in Napoleon's time. I don't know. When is the first railroad? Just apropos nothing. Well, apropos the next topic. Uh, early 18, 
early 1820s. John Bull, I think it was called. So we're still we're still a little bit ahead of railroads, which are a big game changer. Yes, but you do have you do have interchangeable parts. You have, I believe, you have a Jacquard loom. You have In, industrialization. Yeah, industrialization is, in is quickly happening. Okay, so we got conveyor belts, factories, all that jazz. Not, so he's benefiting yeah, from that. There. A lot, a lot of those things like Eli Whitney, things like that. Early 1800s. That's when things really take off. But urbanization has been happening throughout the 1700s as people were getting pulled off the land, and the estates are being centralized into grand estates. Like Pete was talking about last time, and I rephrased so that it clearly fits into how I feel like everybody should view the history of warfare. In this cycle of try a new thing, okay, now try to replicate that new thing into a disciplined formation, introduce a new dimension. So you go from the proto-phalanx to the phalanx to cavalry, eventually. There was a chariot in there. Please see last episode. Napoleon's next big thing, you have muskets, you've developed muskets formations, you've started using the musket, the rifle, the handheld cannon, and in some capacity is now the primary armament supplemented by cavalry. And like Pete pointed out, the next the next progression after developing a formation or adding a new dimension is that the state then puts some sort of monopolization aspect over it. You see the nationalization of these things you basically see the state itself becoming the primary director and investor. And like Pete also just said a second ago, it wasn't really Napoleon per se. Napoleon just worked with what he had. Napoleon comes up with this fun cocktail convo, levé en masse, which basically means, in American, we would say that's mass conscription. It might come off a little bit surprising that it took this long before somebody started conscripting people. But again, like Pete said, he's using what's there. So the French just did this whole French Revolution thing and spent several cycles just murdering, unaliving each other in a quest to find equality. Whatever you want to call the net result as Emperor Napoleon comes out on top of this, there is now this sense that the the, the state is for the people. And reflexively to that, the people also owe the state. They own the ownership. The state and the people are supposed to be the same. And so just as the state has an obligation to protect the people, the people now have an obligation to the state. And ipso facto, levé en masse. You must do your time. You're also driving toward this concept, which will be fully realized at the kind of the, the, the peak of the industrial age in the late late 18, early 1900s, where the German political scientist Max Weber begins to define a state as an entity that has monopoly of violence within its borders. He coins this idea of a centralized state basically holding the monopoly of violence within its borders. We are now at the modern period, so it is my turn to be the know-it-all since you and I both know I've actually read these books. So Napoleon wins for a while until he doesn't. And there is there is some changes in sea warfare, but not really anything that you'd consider evolutionary per se. Because the next thing, the next step in the evolution is intellectual. Pete, when was technically was the scientific revolution? I know that people like to draw a distinction there between the Renaissance and, and or Enlightenment rather. 
Yes, you may Google it and then pretend like you were just quickly recalling it. That is acceptable. So Newton, Isaac Newton lives approximately mid-1600s to 1723. So the scientific revolution is generally considered when he invents calculus, which is, I believe, early 1700s. And then there's a series of very, very rapid scientific advancements that kind of follow on from that all through the 18th century. So the scientific revolution precedes the industrial revolution and kind of begets it. So is this technically an era of, what do you, what do they refer to this era as? Uh, which era are we talking about again now? This is the 1780s and 90s? Yeah. This is the, this is the era of revolutions. So you have the Americans. What bucket would Clausewitz be put in, I guess? Oh, uh, he's, so, okay, so we are in the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment is a, is a, is a catch-all philosophical for the 17 and the 1800s, and it encompasses a bunch of different movements. Clausewitz, he comes in the tail end of the Enlightenment. So, because again, he's writing 1820s to 1830s. Clausewitz is a Romantic philosopher, and he's writing in reaction to the Enlightenment philosophical trend of empiricism, which is very rationalistic. So Clausewitz's view of war is very idealized in kind of the old way of like the Greek philosopher Plato. It's very looking up at the abstract. Let's flesh him out a little bit more because Clausewitz is not remembered as being a philosopher. When you read his book, it makes total sense that Pete's calling him a philosopher, but you would more know Clausewitz as a, as a famed strategist. I usually call him a military theorist now. But the, his biggest contributions is that, and this is this is where I argue this. He this is where the new dimension, the new evolution, starts with Clausewitz. He starts looking at war philosophically. He was a soldier. There were other soldiers, like this other guy named Antoine Jomini, that arguably were better soldiers. Wrote better technical manuals of warfare, but Jomini sort of makes like a half-hearted attempt at his own war philosophy after he reads Clausewitz's notes and feels like people might might buy his book. His Clausewitz was published posthumously. He told his wife to burn it, and he died. And his wife was like, I love you. I miss you. You didn't leave me with an insurance policy. And then she went and took it to a publisher. And so Jomini writes a little bit reactionary to that in this very empirical trying to scientifically be able to prove warfare philosophically. But Clausewitz was definitely the first one that we know of that posited warfare in this, in the war of philosophy of war and military theory. And this conceptual revolution was, was the start of a series of new waves. It's also a product of his, I think of his upbringing and his culture, because he's a, he is a, he's a German, he's a Prussian. And they are intensely romantic at this time period because the German people are trying to figure out what their place is in Europe because they are the only nation, the only group, ethnic group that has no country of their own yet. Clausewitz is, is kind of part of this whole, what you would say, gestalt, this shared consciousness of the German people in looking for something higher and better. Let's throw some other names out there, too, as I'm quickly Googling to seem like I know things, too. Darn it. Immanuel Kant. The famous German romantic. The least Prussian of the Prussians, he has been called. Immanuel Kant. Yeah. Uh, Ludwig von Beethoven. First. I mean, he's, not, he's, a, he's a German. He's not Prussian, but he's, again, intensely romantic composer. This is a... The founding father of the modern university, Alexander von Humboldt. Yeah, the, the chief German university is named after him, Humboldt. 
Yeah, all of these guys were either right before or contemporary overlapping with Clausewitz. So there's this tradition of philosophy coming out, too. And and so that's sort of the bedrock that Clausewitz is also sort of steeped in as well. Yeah, there's other and this cool thing is too is it's a pan it's a pan artistic movement. So you have obviously you have Schlegel and Schelling who are, who are writers and philosophers, though the early guys, but you have painters, poets, musicians, even war. It's very cool. So Clausewitz very distinct evolutionary period where we see a lot of philosophy come out. So Clausewitz is writing this. Contemporary to him is this guy named Helmuth von Moltke. And this guy pretty much single-handedly finds a new way of fighting wars using rails. Well, yeah, contemporary, I mean, you gotta be fair. Von Moltke's a little, he's like, I think he's like 20-something when Clausewitz is at the Kriegs Academy. He might actually study under Clausewitz, possibly, because both, both was... I think that's still fair to characterize as a contemporary, yeah, especially so. when the life went in a lifespan of 30. How, what did he, was he 38 when he died? 42? He's in his 40s, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So, but he's a generation behind Clausewitz. But yeah, you're right. He's a contemporary. He might have studied. I should look into this. I'll see if von Mulka studied under Clausewitz. That's pretty cool. There's definitely overlap between how von Moltke, how von Moltke leads his armies and, and Clausewitz. But you see the incorporation of railroads to shorten lines of communication is what they're called. Moving supplies, moving people. And they're doing a very good job at this. But at the same time, the rest of the world, because Germany's book was published first, and the French, especially because of Napoleon, are kind of looked at as the paragon of military might at this time. Most places are studying the French, including a little gem called the Reform School on the Hudson. Excuse me. The United States Military Academy. This is one of those places that it teaches French essentially for the purpose of reading the French texts, the French military texts, the French manuals of warfare. This leads into one of Pete's favorite topics. It was a rather unfortunate conflict where everybody is applying a lot of what Germany says, right or wrong, and it it doesn't really work out well for anybody, which is, in fact, characteristic of anybody applying any military philosopher that we're going to talk about for the rest of this episode. American Civil War. I was kind of hoping you talk about some of the innovative things that failed here. I tell you what, you can have you can have thirty seconds to talk about the Civil War as a travesty, and then switch over for me to Steam Power Monitor Merrimack. To so like relentless, so like relentless incompetence on the Union side. Is that what you mean by travesty or the? like the failure to apply like Jomini, we're going to find this decisive battle and get it because they're Lee's kind of Achilles heel is that, especially during like the 1862 Northern Virginia campaign, he's, he's seeking like basically strategic success through tactical victory where he identifies like, well, if we just, if we, if we smash the army of the Potomac, then we can, you know, basically get our Saratoga moment like in 1777 and get the European powers in, in the same way, the Northern generals, McClellan, George McClellan, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, is particularly guilty of the kind of same idea where they, because these guys have read from the same playbook. And so in doing so, he kind of half-heartedly advances and tries to fight and things like that and, without trying to lose his own army. I am 
really butchering this because I'm not a Civil War expert, to be completely honest. And I also know my brother Andrew's listening, and he'll probably call me out on this later. Well, I mean, overall, the fair characterization of... Because Klauswitz said it, too. And so it's almost like people read it back in college, didn't re-refer to it as they're putting together battle plans. Because both are just trying to stay out of each other's way, looking for a decisive battle that they can win, right? Because Lee is generally underprivileged, disadvantaged. Yeah. And so he's really struggling to find openings that he can exploit. On the other hand, like you point out, McClellan was this perfectionist who just, he could not leave unless everybody, every last horseshoe was fitted perfectly. Every wagon was filled to an exact mass capacity. He just, he kept waiting and waiting and waiting and he, he blew his moment. Every variable had to be perfectly accounted for. Absolutely. But like, you see, like, though, you do see Jomanian, I think, uh, Jomanian kind of, caricatures uh, I, it's like a caricature they both they both almost yeah. hyperbolic interpretations but, but but i think like especially if you look at the battle of chancellorsville you actually see lee using jomini and like to perfection because he identifies the decisive point on the union right and then allows jackson to then move all the way around the flank and then hit them right before sunset and kind of and kind of look it's a picture perfect jomini battle and he routes the army of the potomac doing it it's just it's hard to repeat that. You kind of get this perfect moment, and then he's always kind of trying to recapture that magic as he moves forward. He's never able to. Yeah. At the end, though, neither side was came out of that particularly good-looking, right? Well, West Point did. West Point came out looking fantastic. That's like betting on both sides. It's just... Yeah, well, like, well, you may say we almost destroyed the Union, but we also saved it. And it's been riding on that for the last 150 years. Like Jack Sparrow, but you have heard of me. You have heard of me. So this whole French warfare thing is not not what it was advertised. And on the other hand, pretty much at the same time, you have von Moltke just deciding, I'll have that piece of France. I'll have that piece of France. I'll take that piece of France. And just the, the Prussian turning into the full German state over in Europe just after the American Civil War. It's just like, okay, well, obviously we were reading the wrong culture's book on warfare because Prussia's got something going for it here. And so then everybody's... I think a lot of Monmoltka's success can be attributed to his better officer corps. Because to be completely honest, the American officer corps during the Civil War was pretty terrible on on both sides. Because the really good officers tended to get killed because they were in the front. And there was very, very few people behind to fill it up. You couldn't take disciplined initiative like you could in the Franco-Prussian War. You could just unleash your regimental commanders. Some new things that von Moltke did is, um, well, if von Moltke didn't do it, then Prussia as a whole did it. Uh, we base a lot of war games. War gaming methodology pretty much originates here at this time. And then, yeah, they were renowned for their general's staff. Something that just really it was, you kind of just had generals over on the other side, maybe a quartermaster officer or so. But sneaking in a little, a little transition back to technologies here. Because we did talk trains, trains run off of steam, so do steamboats. This is another period where you see a huge shift away from sails to these metal armor-clad ships. And this is going to trigger a huge evolution in how people fight at the sea. The biggest, most noticeable part, and I'm going to not presuppose political assumptions here, but the Spanish-American War happens in this epoch. And at the end of the Spanish-American War, the United States has this complete network of random islands that 
aren't necessarily good for much, but you can store coal on them. And steamboats, steam battleships, steams, whatever, use up a considerable amount of coal. And so staging coal, knowing where you can resupply your fuel source, becomes a huge deal, which I think is an important indicator to a change in how we consider basing supply chain management and things related to warfare. There's a few things that provoke that, though, because obviously you have the very famous uh, battle between the Monitor and the CSS Virginia, formerly Merrimack, the first two kind of true ironclads, and significantly, neither of them are able to damage each other. They just kind of lob cannonballs at each other, and then they just go home afterwards because they run out of power. But yeah, you also have a submarine that the South tries out here. I I wouldn't recommend it, though, because it was sort of... Yeah, the Hunley... Only did not have a good reputation. It wasn't it wasn't a suicide submarine by design, but it did require manually placing a torpedo into a wood hull. And so it worked once. It did work once. But yes, but you see you see people leveraging this new dimension. Yes. So what's something that we really pay attention to in America is there's a little known war called the War in the Pacific between Chile, Peru, and Bolivia uh, in the eighteen seventies. And the Peruvians have an ironclad called Huascar, and that ironclad does unbelievable damage to the Chilean fleet that's mostly wooden hold. That, seeing the ironclad in action, especially against unarmored uh, ships, that makes not just the United States pay attention, but everybody in Europe. And that kind of kicks off a naval arms race that the United States is paying very careful attention to. That's why we kind of get into the Spanish-American War and realize, yes, we need to make these protected cruisers, these armored ships, and these ironclads. And as these new dimensions are opening up, following in this vein that Clausewitz laid down, you have Alfred Thayer Mahan in America, and then very shortly after him, Julian Corbett in England that are writing naval warfare theories. So they're riffing off of Clausewitz. Might not be the best way to say it, but it's a great way to think about it because they clearly read Clausewitz. They clearly read Germany. And, and they co-opt or generate new ideas relevant to steam-powered navies now. And so you see the same transition mirrored in the naval scene at the same time, rolling into World War I, and then also after, there's a new dimension that opens up as the airplane starts to be proven a viable platform. First, it was sort of viable insofar as you could float it in the sky with a person in it, used for things like reconnaissance, spotting targets for field artillery things like that as dropping leaflets that was very popular drop propaganda but as as it develops it's it's going to start developing new capabilities that you don't really see until world war ii but you have julian du, julio duhat this italian guy and billy mitchell in america both sort of sounding the drums heralding this new this new dawn of of the air domain and so you see this air domain open up the other thing that world war one world war one was awful and again cannot endorse dan carlin's hardcore history hard enough but the other tragic thing like i said germany is to the american civil war as clausewitz is to world war one everybody read clausewitz and tried to apply clausewitz and it did not go well because you just see them first, they try to rush around the entire flanks. So they all are rushing basically to the, the coast of the English Channel. They can't make it or they can't outflank each other. So instead they dig in because the defensive is generally a more advantageous position. And so they dig in and then they both 
keep trying to invent bigger and bigger field artillery pieces. And the tank starts to get proto tanks start debuting in this war as well as ways to get over that trench. But ultimately what starts carrying the day is massive waves, just rolling tidal wave tsunamis of field artillery fire followed immediately by troops. What, what the military refers to as a combined arms action where you're using multiple types of attack all at once. And so you see this burgeoning combined arms warfare happening here. At the same time, you have the telegraph. It's not the greatest piece of communication, but you can you can send a message over very, very long distances once you've set up very minimal infrastructure. And so all of these things come together in World War One, And that leads to an interwar period where people are kind of just like, what the heck just happened? And you start having a few new theorists sort of positing things, putting, puting ideas forward. But I, I think mostly people are kind of just shell shocked they're shy they don't they don't want any of this anymore there's not much appetite for it there's a historian named basil bh liddell hart in england who starts putting together theories but he he doesn't really produce his most well-known works until after world war ii but this brings us up to world war ii so pete next things i've got written down are the bomber the radio the computer I kind of left the atomic bomb off of there, but I, I suppose we could we could throw that in there. There was a so the bomber is interesting because after World War One, there were people who got really excited about air power. The idea that you could just fly over the enemy line to just lay waste to his cities. Uh, the most notable was a guy named uh, Duhay, who was Italian, I believe, which is interesting. You don't get too many Italian war theorists post-mock. I already said Duhat. Duhat, right? And But he had this wonderful idea where you could just build enough bombers where you could just utterly destroy an enemy's factories, homes, cities, everything, and prostrate him. And then you wouldn't even fight the war. It would be great. You know, the war would be over before any soldiers died, just obviously lots of civilians. That was proven to be a little overly optimistic. Like during the Spanish Civil War of the 1936, when a lot of these things were kind of tested out, they determined you could not conceivably drop enough bombs to do enough destruction to do what Duhay was proposing. Hold on, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're going to have retired Air Force service members coming after us if if you keep down this. This. Oh no, not at all, not at all. But which, which... this is a very touchy subject about how because both in the pacific and european theaters where we tried both kinds of bombing strategically concentrated bombing of key places and just also just carpeting everything that could possibly support human life with bombs and neither of them really moved the needle in any well they we kind of maintained air superiority nominally but yeah yeah, uh, I mean, shout out to Dan Carlin for his, again, he does a great one called Strategic Insanity, which is all about strategic bombing of civilian infrastructure. And the idea is that, for example, Bomber Harris, right, the bomber will always get through. But what Joe's referring to is there's actually still an ongoing debate in military circles as to can you win a war with just air power? It's a very seductive idea because like, oh, look, we don't have to commit any troops. We don't have to get anybody, you know, of our side killed. We can just bomb the enemy into the Stone Age. And the the last decisive, decisive engagement we were in, where it looked like a conventional battlefield, uh, Desert Storm, was 
did not help settle this debate because yes, the the war camp, the land campaign was over in what four four days or so. Yeah, a handful of hours, and but there was a three week air campaign before that that just glassed important important zones. So, boy, was that effective! Like two thousand, I think it was two thousand eight hundred aircraft flying tens of thousands of missions. Unbelievable. We got to close out World War II first, though. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So you get the bomber made somewhat more useful by incorporating the wireless radio. Correct. Oh, and the radio, you can use a lot of things. Uh, the British had a very clever idea where they put two radio transmission towers uh, kind of several miles away from each other and pointed them along the same azimuth so that they made an X. So you could use that radio tower as a as almost like a primitive GPS and figure out when those signals coincide, you then drop your bombs. They did that for night bombing. It, was, it wasn't terribly effective, but it was extremely clever. You have radar come up radio detection and ranging, which is using radar waves to see enemy aircraft long before you can hear or see them with your eyes. Um, dang, there's a lot of stuff that happens in World War II. I want to go back because I think I might have been today years old when I realized radar is an acronym. Oh, you didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. Yes, radio radio detection and ranging. That's what sonar, sonar navigate, sound no, navigation and raining, ranging. That's what sonar means. And how about that? Same with lidar. Lidar is just light detection and ranging. Those are all three of those are just acronyms. Look at that. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, cocktail combo. Yeah, radar. It's an acronym. Man. So you have the, the war in the air. You have tons of things like that. What's some other interest? The radio. The radio. Oh yes, the radio. Fascinating. You've got Saving Private Ryan. You've got Fury. Yeah, those are movies. Yeah. Uh, so interesting thing. So about radio. Uh, when the Germans invade France in 1940, their tanks. Not only do they have fewer tanks, but their tanks are not as good as the French tanks. The reason why the the Germans are able to do what they do in May and June of 1940 is because their tanks all have radio. What is commonly referred to as yeah, I don't like it. It's okay to say it. And so it's it's conventionally known as Blitzkrieg. Again, like we talked about episode one, Germans didn't call it that. They weren't setting forward. They didn't go like, this is going to revolutionize the battle scene, yo. They were just like, all right, hey, that trench warfare thing did not shake out our way. Let's make sure to do anything but that one this time. How did that von Moltke guy kill France? Mm -hmm. Oh, he kept moving. Let's just keep moving. Hey, look at this internal combustion engine powered by petroleum. It's pretty neat, huh? Hey, it goes pretty fast. You know, we actually have a need to go fast right now. And you need to talk fast, too. So Blitzkrieg was the Reese's peanut butter cup of conflict it was and notably the french were primarily using landline telephones i don't know if how many of our younger listeners still know what those are but like required physical wires to be run from station to station and as soon as a as soon as there's a breakthrough and they bust through the lines those telephones become useless like and like sean pointed out in our in our second episode right there's when, when you feel like you won the last war, you don't really have a reason to try and change up what you were doing. So the, the biggest, most successful cheaters are often the people who, want, who didn't win the last time around. So that brings in the radio. And right at the tail end of World War II, you start seeing 
And I mean, like, just start seeing, like, because computers are, like, the size of buildings. So they're marginally useful. But as they figure out how to make them smaller, one of the things they do, I think by Vietnam, I'm not going to bother looking this up because I, I just don't care enough and it's not that relevant. Oh, do you want to learn about the first digital computer? Because I can tell you about that. They start using computers to dial in naval battery fire among other things and so you you see one of the first things the military uses computers for is to become more accurate with weaponry Uh, exactly the actual first ever digital computer made was the electronic numeral integrator and computer or the ENIAC which was the first ever electronic computer not an analog computer and that thing was used for Nike missiles which were essentially giant surface-to-air missiles that were designed to shoot down Russian bombers and later Russian missiles, all about weaponry. And this was the beginning of the end of True Strategy, where we just have progressively offloaded more and more of our strategy, of our creativity, of our genius, of our desire to win to machines until one day it will culminate in the singularity known as Skynet. And the robots will come for us all. That's a little pessimistic, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'm going to get there, but first I have to make it through buzzword culture. Tell me about buzzwords. What's your favorite buzzword? We can get there. Okay. We have the computer. The computer's emerging. At the same time the computer's emerging, you start seeing the ultimate form of combined arms warfare. In Korea, Douglas MacArthur attempts the first all-service joint operation with Operation Chromite. It took a lot of planning and a lot of coordination because joint forces don't necessarily play well together at this time because they're just not, they're not wired to to work across domains. Where and when was that? This was Korea at Incheon, which is near Seoul. What? Did I say it wrong? No, no, you said it right. It's the most spectacular amphibious invasion in military history. Yeah, and this is before he recommends just nuking it. Yes, this was back when we still liked MacArthur before we canceled him. Well, West Point still likes MacArthur. Let's let's. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Let's not try to hide that. West Point's kind of weird with MacArthur. Yes, for those of you who are keen listeners, we're kind of leaving out nukes. Nukes are going to get their whole new episode. They're just, they are, arguably, yeah. That's that was that was very much the bomb itself was a revolution. I don't think there's two ways around that because it creates this whole new dimension of political and international relations. So we'll do our own episode on nukes. Hopefully we can get a cool expert to come in to talk with us about it. So you have Operation Chromite, you have the computer, and this is taking us up. Let's just fast forward a little bit to say we are now coming towards the end of Vietnam and space is cool am i right because the next big thing the next recipe the final secret lethal ingredient to strategy and creative genius the secret ingredient x that creates frankenstein's monster known as rma theory was the global positioning satellite between the computer and the global positioning satellite everything about warfare changes especially everything about military theory I see Pete maniacally tapping his fingertips over here, so I'm going to pass him the ox. 
But would you say that it helps reduce the friction and the chaos in the warfare, which is the whole point of what strategists are trying to minimize, where it's a GPS signal, now you know exactly where your troops are at any given moment? It's yes and no, because the problem is it does such a good job. People think it does a perfect job, right? And there's becomes this assumption, this almost baked in hubris that everything known needs to be known is known. What is my favorite buzzword? Well, Pete, the acronym for it is DBK. RMA theory, regardless of who you read, revolution in military affairs theory argues that there are three things that fundamentally change war conceptually. Dominant maneuver, having better toys than somebody else to actually place on the battlefield as opposed to hit them from farther away. Precision guided munitions. So for the far away fight, you have better missiles, better lasers, better unmanned drones, not necessarily bigger, right? They are far more accurate and have a far higher rate of accuracy and lethality for what they were aiming at rather than just going for collateral damage, like say the nuclear bomb. And then dominant battle space knowledge. With the almighty computer and the satellite, we can see anything everywhere at all times, and we can defeat the enemy just by knowing about anything we want to. This is burgeoning right in the mid-70s. It's part and parcel of what we're developing, those three things, precision guided munitions, dominant battle space knowledge, dominant maneuver, were the linchpin to our, stra our offset strategy to be better than the communists to be able to be prepared to defend against the USSR. And after after we decide that this concept to become self-aware amongst the zeitgeist of, of our strategic superiors and founders, you see something else happen. Instead of instead of doctrine changing over long spans of time, you see everybody and their mother coming up with a new phrase, a new buzzword to get everybody all on board with and think that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Apropos of nothing, the academics are no longer a part of this conversation. I skipped past a whole bunch of people that made massive contributions to, to the study of strategy. The Colin Grays of the world, Thomas Schelling, Bernard Brody, J.C. Wiley, a whole bunch of strategic theorists that probably should have been household names in the international relations community, but we don't necessarily study them or even remember what they were talking about. Colin Gray only recently passed, but I, I can't I can't imagine enough people actually are aware of the contributions he made. As these academics wane and they decrease in prestige, you see the military community itself take over responsibility for its own, let's call them academics. And instead of strategic theory, we just have these new strategic concepts. What's the difference? Well, there's no evidence that any of these things worked, and there's no evidence suggesting that any of these things are necessarily new either. What's the difference between a theory and a concept then? That's a good question. A better way of thinking of the difference between a theory and a concept is that a theory is something that is complete. A theory is something that is relatively at least testable. A concept is just a good idea and that may or may not have originated out of pocket, as the kids say. And you are probably just patting yourself on the back and then going to go full send. 
I'll have to ask my sister if that's how that's said. That's what the kids say. Chads use theories. Simps use concepts. Laugh a little bit louder, otherwise nobody thinks I'm funny, Pete. Oh yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> Cut this in. <laughs> that was even worse. <laughs> <laughs> that one's better. I'll use that one. That was more authentic. So what you have is actually then reckless conceptualizing by the military community because there's really nothing that's providing a check on it. And that may be a topic for a later podcast is the increasing civil military relations divide is that no one really dares to then critique the military. When the army says we're living in the AI drone revolution, no one steps up and says, are you sure about that? But it's honestly, it's a good question. So this next list, and I have to make it through the list. But I expect you got something to say or at least can reference various battles or campaigns or operations in between these things. Yeah, sure. The following is a list of criminal charges I lay at the feet of previous alleged strategists. 1976, one count of active defense. What is an active defense, Pete? Because I can tell you what I think an active defense means. It means you are actively trying to not be attacked. Active defense is how Americans say retreat. It's like how the British say tactical withdrawal. So that is active defense became, that is what people basically said. We said, we got to get rid of this buzzword for our strategy because it sounds like we're constantly running away. When active defense just meant, hey, wherever the USSR were going to be, we will be there to contest them. With our dominant maneuver, dominant battle-based knowledge, and precision-guided munitions. Right, which is it's just a spin on flexible defense, which is a thing I think the Finns and the Germans came up with during World War II. When was uh, NAM again? 60, American involvement, 65 to 72, direct. Yeah. And then Saigon Fall, 75. Yep, so this one, this is, this is, this is a massive rebrand right. after NAM. It has to be understood in that context, um, otherwise it makes no sense. It's the, it's the U.S. Army desperately trying to salvage its brand after Vietnam. Yeah, because it suffered a huge... It, everybody was still thinking Clausewitz, traditional, conventional warfare, as we discussed in, in the first episode. But that is not the only way to conceptualize warfare. And so coming out of this, we had to rebrand so that people forget about how poorly Vietnam went for us. So they come up with active defense. Active defense stays in place for about eight years until we come up with a new theory. And our military during this period is clearly showing a lack of strategy, right? But we legit don't do anything during this active defense period. No, we don't. No, we absolutely don't. There's nothing major that happens. Grenada, which is during the Reagan administration, that might be more your land battle. Yeah, well, the... I, so active defense goes untested, unchallenged, unproven until somebody else comes along and has a new branding name, and that's called Air Land Battle. Air Land Battle at least posits this theoretical connection between air forces and army forces working in a combined arms effort sort of way. And everybody touts that it's this awesome new theory, but what do we see on the ground? Uh, absolutely nothing, because there's no change from the active defense posture. Oh, this is... Go ahead. This is, this is where we legit see urgent fury. We see just cause. We see a series of systemic failures until a final new political evolution happens in 1986. 
So you have Eagle Claw, where Marines crash into army helicopters. Oh, or let's be fair to Eagle Claw. Though. Let's be fair. So Eagle Claw is pre-US SOCOM or JSOC. So there's no unified. This is all US. This is this is all pre that. This is pre JSOC. So there's no unified. This is all pre 1986. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But but like there's there's no. It's a special forces operation. So I don't think it's fair to compare it to conventional strategy in that. And and it's a garbage one because. You have Marine, Air Force, Navy, and Army special operators working uncoordinated because there's no single component commander. Eagle Claw is a disaster because it's not coordinated, and it leads to Joint Special Operations Commander, JSOC. I just don't think it's fair to put, put Eagle Claw on the same level as Urgent Fury or Just Cause. Since there is no special forces yet, I think it is, but that's fine. We can leave Eagle Claw out of it. You had Urgent Fury... And just cause. Urgent Fury was characterized by several failures. Air Force was not talking to Army. A couple of Navy or Marines got schwacked by U.S. Air Forces. And it characterizes this whole lack of coordination, lack of true strategy at the fundamental level. This problem gets so bad, Pentagon's called fun things like malfunction junction and other, other fun names during this time because... Yeah, the media, again, it's funny, especially to, to our listeners nowadays, like the media was really critical of the Pentagon in the 1980s, like harshly so, especially. At well, they don't, the there was no such thing as best military advice. It was it was a commonly known oxymoron because you had to have unanimous you had to have a unanimous vote among the service chiefs in order to recommend any military action. But everybody is protecting their own share. They don't army doesn't want glory going to Navy because where the glory goes, so presumably does the budget. And so finally, you have some, I believe it's chads in Congress that come along and push through a bill called the Goldwater-Nichols Act, which creates the joint force structure we have today. And th one of the first, the proof positive of this and air-land battle is considered to be the Gulf War, successful, successfully fought decisive conflict. And so while there was a new doctrine in place, air-land battle, the real changes didn't happen until you overhauled the entire structure of, of the strategic community of the military. Now, during this period are some of my other favorite words. Pete, for five points, what is E-B-O? I don't think I've actually ever heard of E-B-O. Echo, bravo, Oscar. Effects-based operations. Can you define it? Never. I've never heard of it. I would assume it's something like... I would assume... That is what the IDF made their claim to fame off of back when back when they were getting hot and heavy with Hezbollah. Oh, wait. You mean like when they invaded Lebanon back in the early 2000s? No, earlier than that. But oh, Even earlier maybe. than that? Okay. It started earlier than that. Yeah, well, either way, it means it, is it a means literally nothing to me when I think of that. It just sounds like, is it working? Keep Somebody said, that. hey, guys, instead of trying to destroy the other people's army, we should focus on actual strategic objectives. We should focus on achieving an effect on the battlefield instead of just trying to smite their army. What a radical concept. This was born out of systems theory, which was also related to another thing called network-centric warfare. If you are overwhelmed by acronyms, do not be alarmed. That was their goal. The whole point 
with smoke and mirrors and being the claim to fame of the next big thing, all of it based off of computers and math. Because algebra is what wins wars. I think that was Sun Tzu who said that. I'm being very facetious here. Um, so you have these ideas of systems of systems coming in. So like the computers are all connected and talking to each other. And this is enabling even better dominant battle space knowledge. And well, the Iraqis in the Gulf War didn't really have something to compare this to. So we don't know if that would have worked or not, really. Again, nothing is empirically proven about any of these buzzwords. Fast forward to 2001, when we have the next big strategic change. Pete, this was just going out the door pretty much as you and I started getting out of college. And that was full spectrum operations, if you remember that one, which is basically the same as air land battle, but we added new buzzwords. People are arguing about things because now, now the military isn't losing because it's bad. The military, and then we apply this logic to yeah. studies of Vietnam. We bifurcate You can win the battles. You can win all of the battles, but you lose the war for reasons that aren't the fault of your military. Jun Tzu would say that's a lose is a lose. That means that you you lack the acme of skill to win without fighting. That's what Sun Tzu would say. Utterly ingenious because you can protect your rice bowl and never actually get in trouble. Because you can just be like, well, sir, we accomplished the mission. That's exactly what they do. That's, that's exactly what they do. And so until this hearts and minds idea comes in, which is really more of a concept than any sort of theory, under full spectrum operations, you have people talking about gray zone conflict irregular warfare, hybrid warfare, which involves both regular and irregular warfare. Under Sun Tzu terminology, we would consider all of these things just to be warfare. But there's this bifurcation and compartmentalization so that we can say we are good at some things, but because, because we're a democracy, because we believe in self-sovereignty, because we are not willing to harm civilians, we're bad at these other things. And my, I don't like these buzzwords because they accomplish several things that I would argue are explicit and nefarious. One, they gatekeep from the community. It keeps people from auditing, from outside scrutiny, from objective criticism of what is going on and what is happening. Two, it's a, it aims to abrogate responsibility. You can't be held accountable if this fell outside of your scope. Completely true. Yeah, I agree with you on both counts. And so like all of these new words all come through to describe the kind of this very unique, very specific counterinsurgency conflict that we're fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's why it doesn't look like our glorious victory in Desert Storm or why we were still there in Iraq after the 2003 invasion. And, and now we've done it again with, with multi-domain operations. What has fundamentally changed? All of these doctrines, uh, by the way, are publicly available on the U.S. Army's website or Defense Technical Information Center. Um, so none of none of this is obscured or hidden. So you have multi-domain operations. How is it different than air land battle? I would counter though that they are obscured not by access but by readability, that or accessibility, if that makes sense. Because everything everything in multi-domain operations, the new field manual, is cloaked with a blanket of acronyms and graphs and incomprehensible charts that are not. You can't you can't parse them if you're a layman. It's designed to be that way. It's designed to keep. Whether implicit or explicit, there is a lot of this has become indecipherable. 
But multi-domain operations, the biggest changes is that it's acknowledging things like cyberspace and space as as multiply as multipliers as things that you can leverage in the fight. But ultimately, all of this is just it's just a snowball effect. They're just natural evolutions from things that came before. Sea was a new dimension. Air was a new dimension. Cyberspace is a new dimension. Space is a new dimension. And that brings us up to today, where people are arguing we are in the midst of this new revolution where robots are going to be fighting the next war. So you have unmanned aerial surveillance. You have UAS, these drones, right? Some of them are semi-autonomous. They're experimenting with autonomous drones. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of these new buzzwords that are going to completely revolutionize warfare. Okay, but how? Is it just removing the human element? The hope is that we can win quickly and cleanly without suffering any casualties, which is the same delusion that has been all the way back through every single domain as it's been unleashed. We can bomb the enemy into submission without suffering any casualties. We can choke them off by a naval blockade without suffering any casualties. It is the it is just a repeat of the same ideas from the past over and over again. And that's my point. That's why I don't think RMA theory is really applicable because it doesn't look at things holistically. Sure, you can say there are revolutions in, in concepts and technologies every so often, but how is that anything different than what we talked about Alfred Thayer Mahan saying in episode two, right? You have these plateaus amidst these just these very, very sparse upheavals. And it's just, uh, I really don't know where to go from here. This has been our main in a nutshell, right? There's not really much else to discuss in looking at the history of warfare, but it, it helps understand nothing, nothing came out of the blue is the biggest point. Whether you, whether you believe that it's all about Pete's potential energy or, or my theory of finding new ways, new leverages, getting your people further and further from the battlefield while still being able to kill. How, however you believe it, this is how the study of warfare has developed. And I would argue, because again, one of our rules here is that we very clearly label our own personal conjectures. I would argue that the study of military theory stopped when active defense was announced in 1976. Okay, interesting. So what you see instead, what you're saying instead is just iterations on the same theme. We have not progressed. We have not progressed in our understanding of war and warfare since then. It has been a focus on new strategic concepts rather than holistic theories that, that help us understand warfare and find a new way around. And even when we had these theories, like Clausewitz, Germany, whoever else you want to pick, a lot of times people got hyper-focused on some of their concepts, like outflanking the enemy, leading to World War I's massive lines of trenches, right? And so there's this lack of holistic approach. I don't know if it's because the material's too dense or if it's intrinsic in the training or the education, right? But nobody we've looked at, in the today's episode at least, really demonstrates an appreciation or understanding of Sun Tzu, of warfare as this holistic existential struggle for life and death. 
there's no there's no rules there's no agreed upon norms and if there are agreed upon norms you can expect somebody to try and break them there's there's no everything is focused around the computer everything is focused around the drone and i think that is going to create a huge vulnerability moving forward i think i think the lack of academic progress in this dimension is going to come and and bite us in the hind end at some point Wow, this episode ended on a little bit of a bummer. Yeah, but it was still good. Tip your waitresses. I think people want them more. Yeah. And do it out with a nice bouncy exit track. If you do want to know more, I'll have a couple of links to some things posted on the website. Yeah. And some show notes. Yeah. Uh, Well, the show note will refer to the website because I can't figure out how to make long show notes. And we generally have a lot of, we have a lot of eccentricities to curtail. If you like what we do, leave us a review. If you want to learn something specific, I don't have that many episodes planned that far out ahead. Hit us with your suggestions. We'd love to hear them. We'd love to talk about what you want to talk about. I can't stress enough that the two purposes of this are Pete and I just beefing with each other and just trying to make military theory, trying to make political science, trying to make foreign policy principles transparent to to folks that feel like they can't understand what's going on in the world because everything that goes on in the world ends up coming back home at some point and we want people to be informed and at least know why so that if somebody has something to add somebody can construct move the ball forward and improve things they are empowered to do so so yeah see you guys you will hear from us next week next time Bye.